Evergrande is the is the biggest real estate developer in China, and it's also I would say the developer that's most played into the dream of of a of a middle class future for the average Chinese person. They're really good at、um, designing their their complexes to to serve the imagination of the aspiring Chinese. Thanks for joining for another episode of The Empire's New Clothes. I'm your host Brad MacArthur. Today we're speaking with Anne Stevenson Yang. She co-founded J Capital Research in 2010. They attempt to uncover fraud in publicly traded companies with a focus on China, and that's where we're going to focus today is China. We're going to talk about her backstory, look at she, what are his motivations, where is China headed, and then look a little bit at Evergrande, the story that's coming out of China right now that we're all interested in. So I hope you enjoy. And thank you so much for joining today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thanks, Bradford. Me too. Yeah. So before we jump in, I'd love to know a little bit of your personal history, your personal story with China, because I imagine you've been there for a while. You're in Connecticut now, but、mm. you've you've got a connection. So maybe explain to me kind of what's your what's your history with China. You know, I'm kind of the the original sort of kick around, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. But you know, I was <laughs> the the OG. I'm, I'm I'm a good bit older than you are, and I grew up in the 1970s when、um, when everybody was super skeptical of the government, and、um, mm. I had a a sort of、um, uh, infatuation with、uh, with with socialism. And it seemed to me, in my ignorance,、uh, in you know, growing, being a parochial school girl in Washington D.C., that Mao Zedong was the guy who really understood the peasant. <laughs> like you know, you could oh, interesting. Like there are all sorts of different you know types of socialism, but Mao Zedong really grasped what was driving China.、Um, I was the kid who carried a, a copy of the Little Red Book in my.、Uh, In my blazer pocket in my parochial school, so so I was really kind of was that normal、China. at the time, or ah,、uh, you know, was anyone else carrying around had, that book? Yeah, I mean, people had different、um, different infatuations with different types of socialism, but that was mine. Yeah. So so I I was interested, and I just kind of took a flyer when I was in my twenties and applied to、um, to a whole bunch of magazines in China. And one of them hired me, and I thought, "Wow, this is interesting. Might as well do that." So I flew off to China. It took me about like you know a second to figure out that I was totally wrong <laughs> about about the government <laughs> and about Mao Zedong. But、um, you know, I, I I married a Chinese guy that kept me there. I got a little bit hooked on learning the language. So、um, you know, all in all, I spent twenty five years living there. Fast forward a little bit. You're still in Washington. You decide Mao Zedong really understands the peasant. Why had you drawn that conclusion? Like, what you read the book and, and you're like, oh, he gets it. Or was it other sources? Like, why did you believe that at that time? Gosh, it's kind of hard to remember. I mean, I, I think I think the fact is that everybody,、um, even by the 1970s, everybody was、uh, was disillusioned with. With Marxism and certainly with the Soviet Union, which、uh, which we knew by then was really、um, not the 
the bastion of democracy that everybody hoped. But I think that we really didn't know very mm -hmm. much about China at all. Um, and we had, um, you know, we had these these rosy reports coming out of China of happy workers and happy peasants. And, you know, when you're a, a, a teenager, you don't really, I, I don't think I was actually thinking about specific Chinese people. I was thinking about the U.S. government and, and my objections to it uh, rather than hmm. a, a realistic alternative. So you're almost more running away from what you didn't like as opposed to going towards something you, or maybe mix of the both. Yeah, probably, probably. So you get off that plane and you're like, oh, this is not what I envisioned at all. What were those first observations like when you realize, ah, this story's maybe not all it's cracked up? Well, I mean, you know, the first off the plane, you get very, I mean, this was 1985, you get very anxious because um, everybody stares at you on the street uh, there aren't any foreigners around. You feel very restricted. People are, you, you don't understand anything around you. So you, you, you feel like, oh my God, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I might be breaking a rule. Um, and then, but I think that the, hmm. the big realization came sort of my first week in the office. So I'm sitting in the office and there's a, a young man who shares my office who's, a, who's an English translator. And he tells me that his father died of tuberculosis. And I say, oh, that's a shame because, you know, it really is curable with antibiotics. Why didn't he have, you know, was it a, a, a strain that didn't respond to antibiotics? And he laughed and he said, we can't afford to see any doctors. We're from Jiangxi. We're peasants from Jiangxi. And all of a sudden it struck, what? Huh. In communist China? You, can't, you don't have health care that's universal? And, um, you know, I, I gradually came to, re not so gradually, suddenly came to realize that across all sorts of sectors of society, it was, a, it was a society that was built for the tiny minority that worked in the factories in Beijing and Shanghai, and everybody else was considered sort of a sack of grain that should be, you know, that could be moved around at the will of the leaders. Interesting. You know... I don't know if, have, have your views since that period where you're 85, maybe let's say 86, you've been in China for a bit and you've formed some views since then until now, how have your views shifted over the years? And, and are you still forming your views on China? Or are you fairly solid of where you think and uh, how, you, how you conceptualize what China is? Gee, that's a, <laughs> that's a big question. I mean... <laughs> I, I think I think probably there are an awful lot of ways in which my views have changed, but I would think I, I, mm -hmm. I would I would suggest that the most important one is simply that I no longer care about ideologies or about you know what a government calls itself. The question is the degree to which a government is democratic and how and hmm. you know democracy really can't be un, unraveled. Uh, or, or disentangled from, from the economic system, if you don't have the right to, uh, you know, when I arrived in China, this was before the, the labor law of 1995, people were not allowed to leave their jobs. They, um, they, they you know, they went in, they were assigned a job uh, right out of college uh, or high school and didn't have any choice about where they could go. I mean, they had some choice, but not very much choice. 
um, the, the people who ran work organizations and factories and offices, they were more like, you know, little town mayors than like, um, like executives. They could hmm. send people to uh, criminal detention for two years, up to two years. They had to, to sign a permission slip to allow people to travel or to marry. Uh, when, when I married, we had to get permission from the organization as well as from my husband's mother. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. The, 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 um, you know, the, the, the leaders of these organizations spent all their time thinking about and, and dealing with issues like how many square meters of housing to allocate to which person and, you know, was the hair shop properly staffed and what about the clinic? You know, the, the work that you did there was, was almost completely irrelevant. I mean, just to give you a, a kind of metric, this, uh, the magazine that I went to work for in 1985, it was called China Pictorial. It came out once a month. It had 48 pages that were mostly photographed, pretty skimpy. Um, and the staff was, I believe, around 300 people. I had previously worked at Business Week, which wow. comes out weekly and has 60 pages and had like 90 people. And Business Week was a little bit overstaffed. So, you know, that gives you an idea. Who was paying for this magazine? Like, where did the money come from? I mean, the Chinese government. You know, it was a propaganda magazine that, um, okay. that was distributed through the embassies overseas and... Um, you know, like just to give you an idea, it had uh, it had translation sections for all these different languages that the magazine came out came out in. And next door to my office was the Indonesian section. But if you know anything about Chinese history, that China broke relations with Indonesia, and in, I believe it was sixty seven, maybe sixty eight, when when um, uh, Suharto had this big, um, you know. When, when there was a, a huge oppression of Chinese, ethnically Chinese people in Indonesia. And the Indonesian translators were still there, even though they hadn't put out an Indonesian edition since that time. And the people, the people in the section, you know, I'm sure they're gone by now, so I can tell you, and nobody would be listening to this, but one of them was... Um, he he had psychosis. Um, he, was, he was sort of an interesting old man, but he would walk up and down the halls all day kicking the, the floorboards. He could barely speak coherently. Um, he since died of gangrene because uh, he refused to have a, a cut treated. There was another man who, um, who fixed radios for everybody else in the organization. Um, and, you know, the people just kind of don't, the, there were a lot of people who just lived in the office and slept under their desks. I mean, this was, this was an organization then in China. It's like the work that the organization did was the last thing anybody paid attention to. Huh. Yeah, you know, it's interesting when I, so I've spent two trips in China, four or five months each. Um, this is in the late 2000s. We bought a car each time. We drove all over. We were whitewater kayaking and then also um, putting on some festivals. And um, I did a bit of like uh, importing of rafts from China and the U.S. So it was a bit of hodgepodge random stuff. Um, And I have such a confusing experience with China. My relationship, just me and how I think about China is 
I'm confused. I don't, I don't know how to think about China. Um, I, it's kind of like a love hate. Um, and I don't mean to say hate is in like, you know, try to pick on China or anything. Cause there's plenty of that out there, but I, I find, I find there's two camps. Uh, there's the China's a modern miracle and then the kind of not so much camp and it can get more negative than that. Do you find, are you in one of those camps? Are you, are you even cognizant of these things or are you kind of like, you know what, I've got my own views and they definitely don't fit in either of those. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm totally in the China, not a modern miracle camp. Um, I think it's a, a really kind of normal developing country uh, that some things are good, some things are bad. But this this narrative about how, you know, the Communist Party has lifted a billion people out of poverty, what nonsense, really. I mean, for a number of reasons. Number one, poverty is not a static thing where you were in it and, you know, 50 years ago and then you're not in it. And if, if it were then all of us here in America would be thanking Franklin D. Roosevelt for lifting us out of poverty, right? So that, that's I one. do that number every morning. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and number two, yeah, the, the poverty in China was, was manufactured by the, by the communist government and by the Maoist government. You know, there was a terrible, terrible famine in 58 to, to 61 there were, um, you know, there's just awful poverty in China at the same time that all of its East Asian peers are developing like crazy. You know, why did that happen? Because of the government, not because, uh, because you know, China was just naturally behind. Um, and, um, and finally, <laughs> one thing that people tend to don't really don't understand about China because of the, um, the, the control on information is how poor the majority of the country remains. You know, you've got, you've got two thirds of the country is classified as rural and that two thirds of the country, their educational level is, you know, dead last in the world. Number 75 is on the world mm-hmm. bank list or the CIA list. I forget which it is. Um, you know, their, their um, per capita income is really far down, like below Algeria. Um, health and, um, and, and welfare metrics are quite low. I mean, there's a lot of work still to do in China. Yes, there are super rich people, but there, there's an awful lot of poverty. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Of uh, our, our recollection tends to have these horizons and when we talk about lifting people out of poverty in China, this is modern miracle. We're drawing a line as an, oh, well, there was poverty in the 60s without asking, as you just pointed out, well, what was it like 20 years before that or 50 years before that or a thousand years before that? And that's a, that's a very interesting perspective to take on of this more long view. And and I think drawing it more towards the modern time, it's hard to talk about China without talking about Xi. And so maybe help me understand who who is Xi, Xi Jinping? What's his story? What, what are some of his personality traits and what is he after? Um, well, I mean, one of the interesting things about China is that it's such huge uh, power and and uh, factor in, in, in the world in geopolitics, and yet we know so, so little about it. So that's, that's my disclaimer. 
Xi Jinping, mm-hmm. you know, the, you have this phenomenon in um, in maturing political systems when they've become uh, when when they've reached impasses, let's say, um, and then the the elites who support the the leaders um, become very uh, the, the the leadership becomes very um, uh, unstable and very fraught. So you start to get uh, hereditary politics. I think that we found that that's true uh, in much of the United States. You know, why do we keep having uh, presidential candidates with the name Bush or the name Clinton or the name Kennedy? Um, you know, you get you get hereditary candidates, and that's what uh, Xi Jinping is. Because when you're a hereditary candidate, you can promise to the people who support you uh, that that you'll maintain the status quo, right? So, you know, you knew who, who, you know, George W. Bush Sr. was, so you know who George W. Bush, Bush Jr. is. It's, it's that kind of phenomenon. So Xi Jinping's father, Xi Zhongxin, uh, was a, an important political figure in China. And Xi Jinping uh, came up through the ranks. I believe that Xi Jinping is a, is a true believer in communism, strangely enough, I mean, very few people actually believe in, in Marxism anymore, and yet um, an awful lot of Chinese uh, Chinese party members obviously do. Um, the 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 system being Marxism being uh, the historical dialectic where you go through uh, deterministic periods of history. You start with you know slave society and you go through matriarchy and you go through feudalism and then capitalism and then socialism. And then you arrive in the ideal, uh, in, in the ideal communist uh, world. So, you know, most people think that that's hmm. really silly because it's obviously untrue. It's been, you know, there, there's probably no, no thinker uh, other than perhaps Freud who's been more more often and uh, more conclusively proven wrong than Karl Marx. But whatever, you know, an awful lot of people in China believe it. It's still taught in school. And so I, so I, think, um, I think Xi Jinping does believe in those things. And I think that uh, it, it's also a convenient way to, um, to, to, to believe or to, to help yourself with the idea that uh, that the capitalist period in China from 1979 until present was transitional, that uh, that you know we needed to generate a lot of wealth very quickly, needed to generate an export market and uh, and and, and um, build a lot of capital reserves, but it served its purpose, um, and now we need to go toward actual socialism. I think that's the plan. Hmm. Fascinating. And <clears throat> if if we could have she here and we're like, hey, do you ultimately want respect and recognition for China or uh, like from other global powers? Or do you want China to be the only global power? What do you think is his, his vision there? think that she or other Chinese leaders spend a lot of uh, time thinking about their global power or their their reputation mm. internationally. I do think that they um, 
Now, they're very concerned with, with export markets and with investment, of course, because uh, the aggregation of capital is, is key to, uh, to, to supporting the Communist Party. So, you, you know, you have, to have, uh, you have to have relations with foreign countries to that extent. Um, but I, I don't think they go. And, and I think that, you know, they, they do watch other countries for lessons on how to, uh, how to manage domestically. I think that the, the uh, Chinese government really envies uh, what they see as the stability in the United States. I think they were really put on, uh, on alert on January 6th and throughout the Trump administration when they felt like, you know, gosh, I guess it's not, it's just not a, not a given that the United States hmm. is highly stable. However, you know, it, it's things like that. It's, it's little lessons that they, that they take from, uh, from other countries. I don't think anybody is, is sitting in, in Beijing and Zhongnanhai thinking, oh, I want to be the world leader and, you know, I want, I want to be uh, the, the one that uh, is leading the world trading system. I, I think that's not, just not true. There's no, there's no um, stroking the cat on the shoulder and like, hmm, how do I take over the world? None of that. Yeah, it's just, I mean, that, that's just not their preoccupation. I think that we project that onto them. Uh, and uh, yeah, mm. I, I don't, I don't yeah. think they're thinking about that. Lately, it seems like she's been consolidating power. Do you feel that that is more about his own personal motives of his own personal power, or is it more about he envisions that's the best way to enact his policies for the health of the country? Well, I mean, the two things are the are are, are the the same from his point of view, you know, stability mm. and the the power of the Communist Party and his own his own longevity. Um, I think that. I think that the, the Trump presidency really created a, um, a, a kind of, uh, you know, almost an earthquake in, in Chinese thinking um, because they hmm. looked out across the ocean and they, and they saw this guy who managed to build a huge political base based on uh, personal wealth. And they have the, um, the example of, uh, of Jack Ma, uh, who had, you know, obviously has used to have at least political ambitions and had a very popular blog in China. They saw the example of Guo Wengui, Miles Kwok, who, you know, this this property developer who fled to New York and bought himself a, a penthouse and, and started a YouTube channel and became buddy-buddy with Steve Bannon and with uh, Bibi uh, Netanyahu and so on and so forth. Um, and I think they really worry about uh, about that sort of thing. So they, they for political reasons, um, hmm. he he wants to uh, you know control these private billionaires. Also, private billionaires, you know, they're to the extent that they have hard currency assets, they can they can just extract those, right? So um, y- you know, in in the Chinese system. Your assets are always just basically on loan to you, um, so that you can make them grow or, hmm. or manage them. But you n- you don't really own stuff. So the idea that a Jack Ma could own you know billions of dollars that he could just take overseas is is very um, you know contrary to the to the system. So I, I think that they want to uh, close up that gap, make sure that private entrepreneurs have have uh, lower assets. 
if they have assets in renminbi, that's okay. But in uh, in, in mm. U.S. dollars, not okay. You know, when you say they they study foreign powers and they take note and they're drawing these lessons, it makes me think about when Putin came to power in the late 90s. And then the early 2000s, there was this consolidation of power. And it seemed like his focus was really on removing power from these tycoons, these oligarchs, and centralizing it more with himself and the government. Do you see parallels between that and what she's doing with these these other power players in China? Yeah, I think so. I think that she has done a lot to uh, to undermine the bureaucracy and tear down the uh, the engines of government in China, which are significantly hmm. larger and more powerful and and have deeper history than in Russia. Russia is, in many ways, a, a wild place, right? Um, whereas you know China has a has a bureaucracy, a very very dense bureaucracy that's been around for two thousand years. Um, but but she has done his best to undermine that in order to extend his influence um, and his personal power to, uh, as much as he can. That has its positive side in that you get stuff done, but it has its negative side in that there are all these unintended consequences. Because after all, the point of bureaucracy is to you know to to watch to look around corners and watch out for that stuff. Yeah. So thinking about. Um, China internationally, there's been increased aggression with Taiwan, South China Sea. When, what would be a risk factor of those things for China? We understand that there's some risk factors with uh, other countries, as especially the U.S., but China seems to be becoming a little more aggressive internationally. Are there any, is there any blowback that could come back from that that you think they might not be positioning for? I mean, the, 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 the big risk is that they actually, uh, they actually start a war in order to, um, to capture Taiwan. We're already seeing plenty of blowback blow over, over Hong Kong. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, has China become Do you think more prepared aggressive? For that? Yeah. Sorry? Do you think they're prepared for that, for some kind of, open conflict or they Um, go as far as they can, but they really, really don't want that. I mean, look, it would be crazy. It would be uh, disastrous. Um, But, Mm -hmm. you know, after all we invaded Iraq and that was, that was crazy and disastrous. So you can't really put it beyond them. I think that there are a lot of other options that would, uh, that, that, that would be chosen in preference to actually, you know, military action against Taiwan, but I'm no expert in that area. Um, okay. It's, but, but, you know, the, the Chinese aggression in the South China Sea, the, the camps in Xinjiang, I mean, these are really, really, you know, desperately aggressive and sad and horrible things. Yeah. So looking towards more the monetary fiscal side, what's the future look like for China from that perspective? Well, I mean, China has been, you know, the future for China is like the last 10 years in China, just just expand, expand, expand the currency till you have this, you know, crazy domestic inflation, asset inflation. Mm-hmm. So, um, you, you know, the, the, the strength and the weakness of China is that uh, that you have this, you know, a soft currency. So so it's like 
it's like an elephant breathing through a straw, right? You can't get any out and you can't get any in. So it just goes, you know, blows up <laughs> like that um, yeah. every time they, 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 they pump it and they, they do keep pumping it. So, you know, you get this ridiculous phenomenon where, um, you know, anything that's, that's non-tradable in China, like a restaurant meal or a haircut is just like, ridiculously cheap you can still get a haircut for you know a dollar um or a restaurant meal for three dollars but if it's tradable in international markets it's going to cost more in mmb than it does at target so you know you, you can you can buy a um i don't know a, a men's shirt at target for ten dollars or something in china it will cost you 25 or 30 um because and and that you know extends to all of the the assets as well that are that are not tradable outside of China. So, you know, if you want to buy an apartment in um, in a you know in a decent area of, of Beijing, um, you're going to be paying you know three, four, five million dollars. Whereas you could get the same wow. apartment in New York or, or London for eight hundred thousand or something, right? So, um, you know, that's, that's what, they, they just keep the, the, the nominal uh, mark-to-market price of these, these assets just goes up, 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 up until it becomes ridiculous. It's already become ridiculous. But um, I, think, I think that the end product of that, that phenomenon is that the renminbi has to devalue a lot. And now is this because the renminbi should be devaluing? But it's not because of currency controls, and so that pressure is being released in these tradable assets. I mean, basically, yeah. Um, it, it's the, the remin. Ultimately, the reason that the renminbi is going to have to devalue is because when people people see that um, you know that you have to pay twice as much for an apartment in Beijing as in London, then they figure out a way to buy the apartment in London, right? So in order to control capital flight, you have to you have to do that. So um, you know ultimately, it, that's not the only reason, but that's that's the key reason why I think ultimately there will be devaluation. Hmm. And these these purchasing of assets is it trying to get out of the for for someone who's in China and they have assets or they're able to borrow money, are they trying to get out of the currency and put it in something? And because they, because, but they can't cross that ocean and buy that London apartment, or maybe they can. You mean why is why is real estate gone up? Yeah, I mean I, I think that um, y- you know when when I had my first child, I ran down to the bank and I and I put money into a mutual fund. What the Chinese person, average Chinese person, does is he runs to the real estate broker and buys an apartment, right, or puts down a down payment on an apartment hmm. because you. you Number one, you don't trust the banks with good reason. And number two, you feel like, you know, fiscal asset, it's always going to go up. We've only had a property market in China since uh, 1998 um, and only really a property market since about 2006. So that, that's not a huge history. Um, and during that time, the, it's always, the prices have always gone up, up, up. So you feel like Okay, so I'll just buy this apartment uh, for my child, and then when he becomes, you know, turns eighteen, I'll sell it and send him to the UK to study. That's that's the calculus. So that's 
that's one reason why when uh, property values decline in China, why people get so upset and you have protests. So it's kind of, it's actually kind of funny to a foreigner or kind of weird to a foreigner how, you know, you see all these outrages in China, like, you know, street vendors getting mm -hmm. beaten up by the police and stuff like that. But, you know, traffic accidents, people driving BMWs who just like run someone over who's, who's poorer and never have to pay for it. Um, but people don't get outraged at that. They get outraged at, at when their property prices drop. And that's what's huh. going to happen. That's what's already happening with, uh, with Evergrande. Yeah. Is, is it a, and tell me if this is a stretch, but is it a, is it a stretch to say that the property market is almost a, the stability of the property market is almost a proxy of the stability of society in China. And so if we see instability and fractures in the property market, it's somewhat like a canary in the coal mine for greater issues that could unravel. Or is it trying yeah. to grasp at straws? There? Yeah, absolutely. No, no, that's absolutely true. It's not exaggerating at all. The, that, that's why it's very, very important to the Chinese government to control the, the spread of information on property prices across provincial lines. Hmm. So um, there, there's a whole lot of reasons why you don't get accurate information on, on property prices. But, but one of the you know, key one is that no one wants anyone else to know if property prices drop. Interesting. So is that... Is that one of their greatest uh, sources of attention domestically? Is the real estate market? I mean, I, CCP, I think that, that it's. I, I think that it's um, social stability broadly broadly described, and the property market is a very key portion of that. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you're seeing <laughs> if you watch uh, Douyin, which is the the Chinese you know side of of TikTok or or WeChat video. There are all these videos popping up of people doing having sit-ins at Evergrande or having protests, and that they, they get deleted, you know, within minutes of going up, and yet they just keep on popping up. It seems to be happening all over the country. So the big question is: is always oh, wow. it has been for ten years, you know, to what extent will people find out in other cities that this is happening? You you've been mentioning China taking note of other powers and historical events and all these things. When I hear you explain about the real estate market in China, I think there may be some parallels between the Japanese uh, real estate bubble. Do you think they study or think about that at all, or are they uniquely focused on their specific issue? Yeah, I think they study all these things. I think they have all the sources of information that they we do. have. You know, they, they read the investment bank reports and they they worry about about being japan but they worry more about being a you know having having a true financial crisis so maybe explain a little bit for folks that aren't familiar what is evergrand and you've you've alluded to it but why is it important in this instance as opposed to say any other real estate um uh, investment branch over there well, it's important because it's collapsing. Evergrande is the is the biggest real estate developer in China, and it's also, I would say, the developer that's most played into the dream of of a of a middle class mm. future for the average Chinese person. So, 
they, they always, um, they buy plots of land that are right outside uh, cities that are restricting the number of, of apartments that people can buy. So they try to be the, you know, huh. second or third or fourth apartment that, that a family buys. Um, they provide financing uh, to make it easy. And they, and, and they make their, they're really good at um, designing their, their complexes to, to serve the imagination of the aspiring Chinese. Like one of the interesting things about, um, about visiting the Evergrande complex, you know, the Evergrande model units, is that they're designed, they're not designed for Chinese people. I mean, this is kind of true of the real estate huh. thing generally, but um, they're not designed for Chinese people. Like there are always um, uh, dishes of, of dry pasta in the kitchen, in the model kitchen, like a jar of, <laughs> of uh, dry pasta. No Chinese person eats that. You know, there's always a fake bucket of champagne by the TV and there's, there's a, a picture, there'll be a photograph of um, a wedding photograph of, of a fake couple in a white dress, you know, the woman and a uh, morning, morning suit for the guy. You know, these are things that, that are not Chinese things, but Chinese people look at this and they think, yes, that is, that is our, you know, our European and American future when we become prosperous. Right. So hmm. that's uh so Evergrande is really, really good at doing that. The complexes, you know, the complexes are always built for, you know, a huge number of people. Like there's, there's one outside of uh, Quinming in Yunnan called Evergrande Spring that's built for, uh, or Splendor maybe, um, it's, it's built to accommodate 60,000 people. But because yeah. nobody lives there, it looks like it's really nice, right? Like it, because maybe 10,000 people are actually ever there or fewer. So it's not all that crowded. So you go there and you think this is kind of nice, but they're always, they also always promise all these facilities. Like they, they have Evergrande movie theaters. They have five-star hotels. They have badminton courts. They have, hmm. um, you know, I've, I've seen, you know, so-called international uh, convention centers. And none of these things are ever actually open because they, the complexes are generally not occupied. How many of these units or projects do you, for Evergrande, do you think were knowingly built knowing that they would never be, uh, there would never be tenants inside, specifically for investment and just movement? Mm, I mean, I don't know what's in the minds of the people who build these things, but um, yeah. but the, the, in the minds of the people who buy them, there's there's a disincentive to to have anybody occupy because as soon as you occupy, the value of the unit declines. So so you have this concept oh. in China of secondhand housing. You know, in the U.S., it, it's not relevant. You know, you you look at the soundness of the structure and the location, but you don't you don't think oh, a new house is really valuable. And as soon as somebody's lived in it, it's not valuable anymore. That's not a thing. But in China, that's really a thing. So, um, huh. so it's, better, it's better for resale if you don't live in it. For folks that might not be familiar with this Evergrande story that is happening like right now, when you say blowing up, can you walk me through a little bit of the mechanics of that? Like how are they exactly blowing up and what are the promises they're not fulfilling? 
Yeah, so Evergrande has been um, really aggressive in, in financing its build-out. So uh, it will it will sell, sell these um, wealth management products, which is a, basically a, a package of loan derivatives, um, you know, on the internet or through agents or, or whatever. Um, so, so people throughout China invest in these Evergrande uh, you know, wealth products where they'll, they'll spend, you know, 70,000 renminbi or whatever, and they expect uh, to have it locked up for two years and then to get it back with, say, you know, 7% hmm. per year return. So, so those products are not paying, those products are defaulting. And that is uh, serious for the people who hold the products, especially because in, in many cases, you have uh, the local government officials who have uh, sponsored the project and sold land to Evergrande and personally benefited from that. They're the ones who are going around selling these wealth management products or urging people to buy them. So, um, so if you have, you know, the vice mayor is telling the, you know, somebody who owns a construction company, you really need to buy these, these Evergrande products. He's going to buy them, right? And he's going to be really pissed yeah. off at the vice mayor if they if they go bust. Um, so there's that. There's also, um, you know, the, most apartments uh, in China are pre-sold. And the pre-sell period is generally around 18 months or two years. It can be longer. So you don't, you don't buy something that's ready to move in. You buy something that's under construction and you're going to take possession of it in two years, right? So Evergrande has been taking prepayments for all of these apartments, but using the money for current needs. So that means that a lot of future construction is unfunded. So you've got, you've got over a million people who have paid for apartments who are waiting for them who might not get them. So that's another, that's another really serious problem. So where you see this is that the, the bond, Evergrande bonds are trading at I, I forget what, but you know, thirty cents to the dollar or something. Evergrande equity is down by about seventy-five percent compared to the beginning of the year. Evergrande just announced that they weren't going to pay um, interest on a on a bond that they owe. You know, they're in they're in distress. When you think about what's the possible resolution of this, is it a government bailout? I think that it's not binary. Um, I think that um, that Evergrande will be required already is being required to sell off its non-core assets. So, uh, you know, in, in its heyday, Evergrande had uh, a bottled water company and a grain company and an oil company. It has half of a um, of a soccer team. It has. Um, it has a, an electric car company. It has a health, co- you know, all sorts of stuff. So wow. it it will be sold. It, it will be told to uh, to sell off those assets uh, to the extent that they can. Then the uh, the particular projects, you know, in, initially the government will shop around for other developers to take over projects, but they won't necessarily find them. In that case, probably localities will be required to take over projects. But the problem is, whichever way you slice it, it's going to require a lot of financing because, uh, you, you know, you've, if you have these, these projects that are half built and nobody has the money to build the rest of them, you have to figure out what to do with it. Yeah, it's a, it's a wild story. Very interesting to see how this thing's going to end up. 
Um, we're getting close to the end of time here. I want to ask you a quick question about the social credit score because I've got some friends that have been in China for decades, some eight, six years. I ask them on protected channels, you know, what's up with the social credit score? They're always very cagey. Um, and you were living in China up until COVID. What's your perspective on that? I think a lot of people here have a hard time. Like, like they're not not sure what to think about that. Uh, so the the social credit score is not is not one thing, and it's not it's not something that um, uh, that that any one institution has. So so there's. The, the, the government, the, the PBOC decided, the central bank decided a few years ago that they would like to have uh, an individual credit rating system and they bid out contracts to all of these private companies to try to develop those. Those contracts have now been ended and private companies are no longer invited to participate in developing a social credit score. The, there's a, there's a lot of, there is a lot of um, bureaucratic overreach in the application of so-called social credit score. What that really just means is that when uh, when debtors are found uh, to be to have defaulted on stuff by courts, then they can um, they can be restricted in a whole lot of activities that they didn't used to be restricted in. But that's not that's not really a function of the social credit score. Uh, it's a function of, you know, deciding that the courts could do that kind of thing. Um, I, I'm kind of, I, I'm not super impressed with the social credit score. It's, you know, the, the idea that the Chinese government has, you know, massive amount of data and it can track people. And it, it's just, it's not really true. I mean, the, like any government, it has, uh, there, there's a lot of information on individuals in this pocket and in that pocket. The question is, Who's really synthesizing it, and what can they do with it? And that's uh, hmm. that, that's that's not the same thing at all. Is that the vision that it's centralized, it's all in concert, and it's an easy way to uh, track and keep tabs on everybody? Or is or is that kind of more the narrative we hear over here? And it's like, oh, that sounds scary and Orwellian, and that might not be reality. I mean that's always the vision. Um, I mean, what's what's Orwell, Orwellian is the fact that you don't need a social credit score or anything else to to arrest someone and and hold them in a black jail uh, without without telling their family. You know that that's the Orwellian part. The social credit score. You know the the Chinese government, of course, has had um, had a desire to to collect and manage information on individuals for a very long time. You know, they, the, the original Chinese system was that um, every individual had uh, what's called dangan, a, a, a file that was public to the party and to people who employed you, but not to you. You could never see what was in your dangan. And people would put notes in there huh. about absolutely everything. You weren't allowed to change jobs or move to a new apartment without accessing the dangan and moving it to the, the new organization. So the, the Chinese government would love to replicate this system digitally. Um, but, you know, we're talking about a government that couldn't even make a cross-provincial bank transfer until like, you know, 20 years ago. So I, I'm not holding my breath. Okay. 
so, so to wrap up here, what are some good things we can learn about China? Or, or I'll, I'll rephrase that: some some good lessons that we can take away from China and and perhaps apply to ourselves over here in North America. Hmm. I'm not too sure about that. I mean, I I, I think that you know I once um, was invited to uh, Mexico to give give a series of lectures about China, and the mm-hmm. the um, part of the agenda of that organization, which is a really big, the economics department and the university there was to figure out how to emulate China because they seem to be developing so fast and Mexico is so stuck, really. I don't think that's the lesson to take from China. I mean, China has, by virtue of the centrality and the unity of its government, its verticality, it's managed to, to you know, deploy a huge amount of capital and therefore uh, achieve this you know, world-beating development for so many years. That, that same centrality has created huge tragedies like the famine. So um, you know, is that something that you want to em- emulate? You know, I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, Anne, I certainly appreciate your time. If folks want to hear uh, more about your thoughts or read more of your thoughts, I know you put a lot of stuff out there. Where can they find you? Hmm. Well, I, I have. I'm. I'm doing uh, a little column on Forbes.com. So, because just as kind of a, I don't know, venting um, every now and then. So, <laughs> can definitely find that. Okay, sounds good. So, Anne Stevenson Yang. Uh, check her out on Forbes and then uh, you're on Twitter yeah like everybody else there I am on Twitter sure (laughs) there you go all right well I appreciate you joining Um, it looks like the lights out are over there it was so bright when we first started and it must sun must have set that's right the sun (laughs) goes down earlier now than it used to it used to be light until nine at night it's kind of sad we're coming up on the on the equinox aren't we I know we're coming up fast. It's going to be short days any moment now. Well, uh, again, thanks for joining. And uh, this has been a really fun conversation. I appreciate it. Pleasure talking with you, Bradford. Thank you for watching to the very end. If you like our content, make sure to like, subscribe, rate, and review. It is the best way to help us reach the most people possible. And that way, we can keep producing content every week. Make sure to drop a comment below of who you'd like us to interview next. And we look forward to seeing you next week.